This morning we are going to take a brief break from our walk through Second Peter. Our scripture is drawn from the book of the Revelation, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Our Lord Christ is speaking, and he says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos writes, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you, have, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Where Satan dwells cannot in any way be a good and godly environment. The Lord addresses seven churches in seven different cities in this section of Revelation. And while a number of the churches are in desperate straits, uh, only this one is said to be where Satan dwells, and commentators, of course, will go hog wild trying to figure out exactly why the Satan dwells here. I don't know, but it has to be an absolutely low-rent district as far as spiritual things go. It has to be a pretty bad place. Satan dwells in Pergamon. And where Satan dwells... Satan will have a throne. Satan intends to rule. Now, an interesting thing about the title Satan, because that is what it is. It's not a name. It's a title. The title means the accuser. And if we were to do a survey of what Satan, the devil, was doing throughout human history, we would see that in the earlier years, uh, he actually could stroll into the throne room of God. His office was to accuse mankind. He did it with relish. When you get to the Gospels, there is a point where Jesus sends out the, the 70 witnesses to go and preach the Gospel two by two. Uh, this is really the first large-scale full gospel evangelism moment in history. And after this happens, Jesus will say, 
I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning, he got kicked out. And in chapter 12 of Revelation, you see that kicking out. He's not able to go into the throne room anymore. Uh, he can't go directly to God and accuse you. The gospel protects you from that, but it doesn't change his office. He is an accuser. That's what he loves to do. But he does not accuse so as to make anything better. You could think that somebody who had the title, the accuser, could be a reformer. I mean, after all, to accuse what is wrong might be motivated by a desire to see what is right set in place. And in Bible study this morning, we were looking at 3 John, where the Apostle John accuses a man by the name of Diotrephes. He calls him out publicly because something sinful was happening. He puts forward another man who he says, okay, this is the one you ought to follow. This is an accusation, and it's public, but the motivation of the Apostle John is positive. He desires the rule of Jesus Christ to be advanced and maintained. That is not what Satan, the accuser, is doing when he accuses. He accuses specifically to establish his own throne. And in Pergamum, he dwells, and in Pergamum, he has his throne. Uh, make no mistake. Satan intends to rule wherever he dwells, and um, where he rules, there will be persecution. Antipas, our faithful witness here mentioned, learned that the hard way. Satan's culture, where he dwells, will be an accusing culture, and it will accuse the saints of God, it will accuse the kingdom of God, it will accuse it of real faults, because we do have them, and there are hypocrisies and sins that, that are rife in the body of Christ. If you want to accuse the body, you can find things to accuse. Um, it will also be accusations of good things that nevertheless the world doesn't like. It will be a culture of accusation specifically to substitute one throne for another. The goal of this accusation is to take down the rule of Jesus Christ and to put up the rule of Satan. That's why he has a throne. You can see this dynamic today in really the, the two big manifestations of the kingdom of Satan that we have going right now. I'm not saying these are the only manifestations, but as far as big ones go, you've got modern Western liberalism, and you've got Mideastern Islam, and you wouldn't think those two would have much in common, but in reality, they do, and that's one of the reasons why they get along so well. You wouldn't think modern liberals with their emphasis on feminism and LGBTQ and all that sort of stuff would be buddy-buddy with Islam, but they are. They are both cultures of accusation, accusing Christ and accusing his church, 
to break them down. They operate that way all the time. If you listen to Muslim apologists, they accuse uh, Christians left and right so as to undermine Christ's kingdom. Uh, it's stereotypical, it's almost cliche to point out how liberals literally live a life of pointing out perceived sins, perceived slights in the kingdom of God. They are accusers. Their goal is to substitute one throne for another. They do not wish to reform the Christian church. They do not want to make her better. They want to destroy her with their accusations. And that's the way things have been. You don't have a lot of change of tactics in the kingdom of darkness as the millennia roll by. I mean, he's an accuser, as what he does. Just this past week, I watched two different cases of uh, young schoolgirls, middle school age, they were in the public schools. Uh, one of them was older, but she was talking about when she was that age. Uh, they were in very public formats, one of which was being filmed for the news, one of which was at her father's funeral. In both cases, these young girls got up and publicly denounced their father. Uh, my father was a conservative, fundamentalist Christian. He was a bigot. I hated him because he, he raised me in this backwards way of thinking. Uh, I'm coming to the school board to let you know that my father is an evil man because he wants to impress upon me Christianity. My teachers have told me how evil Christianity is, and I'm really thankful to them for opening my mind, yada, yada, yada. Uh, you don't really have to look real far to find these kind of things in today's culture. It's a culture of accusation. Accuse the saints to break the saints down to establish the rule of Satan, the accuser. And in such an environment, Antipas will be uh, put to death because after all, the kingdom of Satan actually claims moral uh, superiority. It is beyond my ability to really comprehend how cultures of accusation like the ones I've talked about can claim any sort of moral superiority. Uh, blood flows at their hands like nobody's business, but they do. If you talk to a modern liberal, if you talk to a Muslim, uh, their sense of moral superiority just exudes. You're the bad guy, they're the good guy, the kingdom of darkness is really the kingdom of light, uh, and therefore persecuting you is perfectly okay. A culture of accusation only likes toleration until it's in charge. If you look at the history of the world, wherever a Pergamum has developed, wherever our Lord Christ can look at a place and say, okay, Satan dwells there, that's where his throne is, you will not find toleration there. You will find absolute despotism there because, again, Satan is no reformer. He is an accuser to bring about his own rule 
And when he rules, he will broke no other. And so you will have persecution, you will have death, you will have tyranny. That's what the kingdom of darkness does because it has moral superiority. Satan will probably not rule in his own name. While I told you that commentators go hog wild trying to figure out why Pergamum is said to be where Satan has his throne, to the best of my ability, there was no, quote, satanic temple by name in the middle of Pergamum where people were worshiping the devil by name, where there was a priesthood to the devil and he, his priesthood wrote out things for people to do. But nevertheless, the devil will rule. There are certain places on earth where you honestly have things like a satanic temple, but they're rare. Usually Satan rules through other names and other smiling faces, but he nevertheless does rule, and wherever he dwells, you have a throne. With that in mind, given that that's where Pergamum is spiritually, we should ask ourselves a couple of questions concerning this text. What does Christ commend in this text? Well, after he tells us about Antipas being put to death and the fact that Satan rules, he commends his church, he speaks well of us, and he says, you and Pergamum have done two things that, that I, the Lord God, commend you for. First is, you hold fast my name, and the second is, you have not denied my faith. Those are active and public things that the Christian church is doing in Pergamum. Satan dwells there. Satan has his throne there. The average human reaction to such an environment would be, I will keep my head down. I will try to avoid notice because this is a very bad place. I mean, right that is not what the early church here is doing. The early church is, quote, holding fast the name of Christ. When you hold Christ's name, you are, are publicly living and stating that Jesus Christ is your Lord. That the highest authority you have is the Lord Christ. There may be other authorities and they may have appropriate places, but you hold his name. His name is on you in ownership, and it's not something secret. You can't really do that quietly. And you certainly can't not deny the faith quietly. The only way you can not deny the faith is if somebody is expecting you to deny it. That's when the action comes into play, and you don't deny it. So this is a very public thing. Someone is saying to the Christians, you deny the doctrines of what Christ has taught you, deny the truth of Jesus Christ, we're telling you to do this, and Christ says, you didn't do that. It would have been very easy to do that, especially when you go back and you look historically at the things that are, are happening around about this time and what could be being referred to, uh, Caesar feels threatened by these followers of Christ. 
they are saying Jesus Christ is Lord, and they're not adding the words in my heart alone. They're saying Jesus Christ is Lord, and Caesar is not an idiot. Caesar is Lord, and he likes being Lord, and there's no way he's going to broke a rival. So uh, the Christian movement is actually going to spur Caesar on. He's always kind of hinted that he might be God. You know, it's been part of the, the, the retinue. But he's going to come out and he's going to say it. He's going to say, I'm descended from the gods. I'm Caesar. I rule. I expect worship. But you don't have to worship me exclusively. Uh, there's going to be a state temple and you're expected to worship me. But all you really have to do is you have to go into this, this temple and you have to burn a pinch of incense to my name. That shows that you are loyal to me. You don't have any higher lords. And then you go off to any other temple you want to go, go off to and, and do any religious worship you want to do. But I expect you to acknowledge me as the highest lord. Just burn a little incense and you'll be done. In our current culture, where you actually have Christian leaders asking what is the big deal about going to a ceremony where you have abominable practices being celebrated, the idea that Christians would be willing to die like Anipas to not burn a little pinch of incense is beyond their comprehension. The average leader of the evangelical church today would say, what is, what is the big idea? Jesus can be Lord in your heart. Um, you know, you go in there, you burn a little incense, but you don't really have to, to really mean it. It's just kind of a cultural practice. Uh, you can come out of there, you can be anything you want to be. Even Caesar says you can do it. Uh, and you don't want to offend anybody. I mean, we all are Romans, and it will disrupt Roman culture cohesion if you don't burn a little bit of incense. So you should be winsome, and you should not offend your neighbor. You should go in there, burn that little incense, just kind of make the public statement that, you know, it's okay. And then you come out and be Christian. The early Christians didn't do that. And Jesus commends them for this active obedience. They are living like Jesus Christ is Lord, which he is. They are living like Jesus Christ rules, which he does, even in a city where Jesus himself can say, Satan dwells here and he has his throne here. So this is, this is a power encounter like nobody's business. The Christians are living as countercultural as you can possibly get simply by being Christian, by saying Jesus Christ is Lord and living accordingly, which is not really that dramatic a thing to do. Uh, how do you live out the Lordship of Christ? Well, you obey the king's law, and we just confessed that when we were uh, praying about our sins. We Confess what that looks like. That looks like not bearing false witness. That looks like not committing adultery. That looks like uh, not murdering, that sort of thing. Satan is not going to have any of it. It's a 
very peaceful, good life. It's good for your neighbors. And Satan will not have it because it says Satan isn't Lord. And so you've got this power clash and Jesus commends his church and says, you have actively not hid. You have actively lived as if I am Lord. And it is interesting that Christ does not tell the people of Pergamum, uh, you should leave. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, Christ will say that to some people. In the sermon uh, on, on the Mount of Olives, Christ will say, when you see the, the standard of desolation, get out of town. Get, get out of this place. Because judgment's coming. You don't want to be in Jerusalem. I'm coming to destroy the city. So leave. And that's what the Christian church does. But here, Christ says, now where you dwell, Satan dwells, he even has his throne there, and I am glad and I commend you for your active obedience while you're there. He doesn't say, now I'll be angry if you leave, but he doesn't give a command that you should leave. He commends his church for faithful obedience, even in an environment where Antipas can be killed. And he says, this is what I want from my servants. This is civil disobedience. This is the apostles speaking to the Sanhedrin and saying this in the book of Acts. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. There is not really anything secret about the kingdom of God. And Christ commends his followers for being up front. Although he does uh, give some condemnation as well, what is it that Christ in this passage condemns and wishes to correct? Well, that is in verse 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. When Satan begins to squeeze the church of God, when he begins to try to harm it, what are the things that Satan tries to do to it? Well, Christ mentions two here. He mentions idolatry. And he mentions sexual morality. This has been the, the, the way of it for 6,000 years. Balaam is a prophet. The scripture calls him a prophet. He is a religious leader. He is even in communication with the true God. He, he's got his bona fides. Uh, he is a official leader in, in religion. And Balak comes to him, the Moabite king, and says, 
I want to thwart the people of God. I want to thwart the church of God. I want the visible church of God to be defeated. What should I do? And the religious leader says, you should encourage idolatry, and you should encourage idolatry by means of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is very, very attractive to the flesh, and it can be the means of bringing people into idolatry. And if you more abound the church of God in sexual immorality and idolatry, that will destroy it. You're paying me money to figure out how to destroy the church of God. That's how you do it. Sexual immorality and idolatry. Jesus says to the church at Pergamum, even though you are continuing to exist where Satan has his throne, the pressure upon you has pushed in, and that is there. There is, um, there is sexual immorality that's, that's eating into your, your bones. There is idolatry that's eating into your bones. If you think that is just outside the church, you are incorrect. And it is the Nicolaitans who have brought it in. The, uh, the NASB makes the connection well stronger in the way it words it. The Nicolaitans are a group of people that we don't know that much about, but they come up in, in Revelation. They may be Gnostics, they may not. But one thing we do know about their name is Nicolaitan, it means the binder of the people. And so these are people who want to bind the people. They want to be in charge, they want to be official, they want to be official in religion. And Jesus says to John, just like Balak, Balaam was a prophet and he led to the destruction of the visible church, the Nicolaitans who want to be in charge are what's causing the church to be destroyed. They want to bind the people, shepherd them, lead them, and they are where sexual morality is actually being pushed from. They are where idolatry is actually being pushed from. When the Presbyterian Church in America was formed in 1973, uh, one of the things that they needed to do was they needed to kind of assess how they had gotten to where they were. Why do we have to start another Presbyterian denomination? Uh, why do we have to leave the PCUSA? What happened? And the founding fathers of the PCA said, if you look at where sin and depravity has come into the church, it's almost universally come in through the leadership. It's been ministers who have compromised. It has been leadership that has said, it's perfectly okay to burn the pinch of incense. Uh, the weird doctrines come out of the seminaries because of that, we're going to establish that in the PCA, religious committees are required to have two ruling elders for every one teaching elder. And that was very, very wise. And from about the second year, there was a group of people in the PCA that kicked against that because they said, how is it that these ruling elders who really don't dedicate their whole life to religion, they're butchers, bakers, and, te and teachers, uh, how can we let them be two-thirds of the leadership? We want professional leaders to be in charge of everything. Well, Balaam was your professional leader. 
and the Nicolaitans were your professional leader. And Jesus says, I have this against you. You have let these, whatever they are, official religious people, in this pressure, lull you into sexual morality, lull you into idolatry. I see this, and I condemn it. I am calling for its correction, and if you don't obey, I'm going to come and correct it. Now, how is the Lord Christ going to come and correct it? Well, he presents himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword at the beginning, so this is a threat. And then he very clearly says this is a threat. He says he is going to come and, quote, fight against them. Um, verse 16, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, who is them? He has mentioned that in Pergamum, in the culture, Satan has his throne, he rules there. Is that the them that Christ is going to come fight against? Or in the texts, is it somebody else? Textually, when Christ says, I'm going to come and fight against them, he's talking about the Nicolaitans and everybody who in the church of Christ compromises this way. Our Lord Christ is not threatened by the throne of Satan. The fact that Satan puts up a throne and says, I rule here, is not anything that Christ is in any way affected by. Our Lord Christ is completely sovereign. He is going to come at the end of time, and we are told he is going to overthrow Satan with the breath of his mouth. He's literally going to blow him away. This is not exactly an easy, you know, hard, uh, equal fight. The Lord Christ is going to come, and he is going to fight against the compromisers in the church. He sees, he knows, he knows who compromises, he knows the idolatry. There are probably some in the church who are open about it, like modern liberals saying we can combine up uh, pagan ideas with Christian ideas. There's probably a lot of people in Pergamum who are secret about it. In the pressure of their environments, they are doing things in the darkness, and they assume Christ doesn't know. Christ knows. And he says, if the church doesn't repent, I will come and I will fight against the church with the two-handed sword. Why is it that Christ will fight against the church and not Pergamon? It's because Christ loves the church. The Lord Christ is saving people out of the world into his church. He is giving new life in his church. That's the environment that Christians are being brought into. Christ isn't all that concerned about Pergamon. Pergamum is going to burn and be reshaped uh, in the new heavens and the new earth, where geographically Pergamum sits, it's probably going to be a very lovely place, but there's going to be nothing of that Pergamum. But the church of Jesus Christ is the body of Christ. And Jesus Christ loves the purity of his church overwhelmingly. 
and he will come himself and he will fight against the compromisers if the church doesn't repent. And quite frankly, that is to me a very comforting promise of Christ. Now, make no mistake, it's meant to be threatening and it's meant to call the church to repentance. But the only way the church of Jesus Christ will have her purity maintained in this wicked world is if the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't act as king and come and fight for it and against it. By the way, did you know what the term Israel means? Jacob gets renamed, and he's kind of the figure of the visible church, and we're called the true Israel. The term Israel means God contends, but it can mean either God contends for Israel or God contends with it. It can mean both. God is contending. And so uh, God cares about his church. God rested on the seventh day after creation and said, I'm pretty much done with everything. But God actively comes and cares for the purity of his church. Think about that for a second. What will bestir God who has said, I'm resting? It is immorality. It is compromise. It is leadership of the church saying uh, the greatest uh, virtue of God is nicety and it's perfectly okay to commit idolatry to not offend your neighbors. You may be wondering why I switched out to preach this at this point. Well, I'm rarely guided by historical events, but I really kind of felt I had to be. Um, do you know what a ceremony is? R religiously, do you know what a ceremony is? Why do we have ceremonies? What's going on when we have them? Ceremonies come out of covenantal life. When you have a ceremony, it's connected to some covenant. So with that in mind, if you engage in a ceremony, it is not just that you are experiencing something culturally. It's not just that you are a tourist watching someone else's life. When you engage in a ceremony, you are committing to the covenant that that ceremony represents. Case in point, when there is a, a wedding ceremony, what has happened? Well, there is a covenant being formed. Uh, one person and another person are declaring to their community, we are going to walk in covenant together. But why is the community there? Well, the community is there because the community is part of the covenant, too. They are saying to their community, we are going to be an entity within you. And the community is saying back, we are going to welcome this unit into our community. And that's why we're having the ceremony. That's why people walk down the aisles and they do very symbolic kind of things. Ceremony comes out of covenant. And so if you go to, say, a gay wedding, like has been being talked about, because you have a major Christian leader 
who said, you really ought to be nice to people, go to your grandson's gay wedding, give him a gift. You, you know, you've told him you don't really approve, but you go be part of it because you don't want to harm his feelings. What they're doing is they're saying, go burn the incense. It's a ceremony because the incense is a covenantal ceremony. It says Caesar is Lord. We're going to worship him. The wedding ceremony says we're going to acknowledge this as something that's good and godly. When you go, you're part of the ceremony. And you are saying, I adhere to this. Now, it's been pointed out that there is one cutout to this. In the classic wedding ceremony, there is that one place where the minister says, now, does anyone know that if there's any reason why these two should not be wed, you could theoretically go and declare the reason. But I assure you, it's not going to make you popular. And if you're not going to do that, you probably ought to give it a pass because it is covenantal and you are entering into a covenant by what you're doing. Christ, our Lord and King, is our Lord and King by covenant. And he does not broke any rivals. You cannot bring into his covenant the things of demons and expect Christ to go, well, that's an interesting innovation. I guess we'll let that sit. Christ cares intensely for the purity of his church, and the advice that was given pollutes the church. It encourages sexual immorality, and if you understand what a ceremony is, it's idolatrous. And so, uh, how could I not think of Pergamum, where Satan dwells and has his throne? That's very much the culture we're in, and the advice that was given was, well, Christ will understand, it'll be fine. And Christ says, no, I'll come with the sword, and I'll attack the church, and I will purify it. Uh, Christ, though, says, for those who overcomes, there are two things that he will give. And the giving is in the context of this pressured culture. It's in the context of don't, don't be uh, polluted, he who overcomes, I'll give him two things. One is, I will give him of, quote, the secret manna, end quote. Manna, if you know your Bible, is the food of angels. It's what God sent down upon the visible church when they were wandering the wilderness. Uh, it's literally called the food of angels in one of the Psalms. Um, what does Christ mean that he will give the hidden manna? Well, the verb tense for hidden is that really neat tense that means something's happened in the past. It totally changes everything that goes forward. There's an emphasis on the fact that manna is hidden. Manna sustains. Manna gives strength. Manna builds up your life. They literally ate this stuff and lived on it for 40 years. Christ is saying, I will give to you who overcomes a sustenance to live off of that is, quote, hidden, nobody who's outside of this is going to understand it. The, the, the typical human who is outside of Christ, David has their number when he says, many are saying to me, who can show me any good? Uh, cynicism abounds in the world. The average person is just trying to get by day by day. But Christ says, 
if you are faithful to me and overcome, I will give you a manna that the world cannot understand or even see because it's hidden, but I will sustain you. I will give you strength of character. I will give you strength of mind. I will give you a wherewithal that the world cannot understand because it's hidden from them. And I will also give you a, quote, new name. It's going to be a stone. Uh, I'm going to hand it to you. It's a new name. And the only person who really will understand this name is the person that's given to. Well, I have to ask myself, what's wrong with my current name? And why would God give me another? What's going on here? What's in a name? As the Bible opens, you have God creating everything. He creates everything out of nothing in the first verse. And then he shapes and molds it for the next two chapters. And how does he create it in shaping and molding? He does it by saying, now this is earth and this is sea. This is birds. This is livestock. God names them. He speaks them into existence. And suddenly they're there. God gives meaning and purpose and definition to his creation by giving them names. And then in the second chapter, God, having created an under-shepherd to, to shepherd this world he's created, he brings to Adam all the creatures, and he says to Adam, now you name them. Why does God have Adam name the animals? Well, he who names defines. He who names is over the named. Uh, culturally, we could go deep into this in Middle Eastern thought, but take my word for it. I mean, you gave your children names when they were born. Why did you do that? Well, it's because you use over them, and you give them a name. You define them. Well, God says to Adam, now you name them because you're going to be my under-shepherd. You give them a definition, you give them a purpose, you give them an, an understanding. What's in a name? Well, a name is an identity. What happens if you don't like the name God has given you? I don't mean the name Sarah or Bill or Bob. I mean the identity God has given you because the name is symbolic of the identity. What happens if you don't like it? And you say to God... I won't let you define me. I'm going to define myself. What's going on there? Well, it's the created telling the creator, I don't like the way you design things. And I'm going to do it differently. And the problem with that is it's theft. Because the creator owns you by reason of creation. The creator defines you by giving you a name. And when you say, I don't want this name... I don't want this identity. You are literally rebelling against the throne of Christ. And in Pergamum, that's what's going on. Satan has his throne there. He's trying to replace the throne of Christ. So you are literally playing into Satan's rule. Because believe you me, you're not really going to get to define yourself. There's going to be a throne. It's going to be over you. And you're going to submit to somebody. You are not God. You will never be God. There will be something over you. And if the throne of Christ is not protecting you and shepherding you 
and giving you sustenance, somebody's throne is going to be over you, and it's going to be the devil's. But he who overcomes, God says, I will give him a new name and a name that only he understands. What we have here is we have development of identity through the pressure of not compromising with the throne of Satan and Pergamum, with the pressure of, uh, you know, compromise would be okay, no, I'm not going to. In the, the heat of that conflict, Christ is going to give you a new name, a new identity, a new purpose, a new, a new you. This is actually a symbolic image of what sanctification does. We are being transformed ever more into his glory, and usually the transformation comes through the crucible of fire. So if you're feeling pressure just absolutely smashing you in every direction, um, your brothers and sisters live in Pergamum. So, you know, keep everything in, in context. But Christ says, if you overcome, I will give you a new name. And it's a name that only you can understand. Uh, have, you, have you reached the point where in your spiritual growth with people around you who, who don't belong to Christ, you get the feeling that they just really cannot understand who you are? I mean, they're not being hostile or anything. Just honestly, you're an enigma to them. They just totally don't get you. Well, they don't. Because Christ gives you a new name. It's a name that only he and you can really understand, and it's actually a blessing. It is God making you more and more into the image of Christ, and Christ says, if you overcome a Pergamum, I will give you these things. A sustenance the world can't understand, a new identity in me that the world can't understand, uh, and these are good and blessed things. But make no mistake... Idolatry and sexual immorality are not small things. When the leadership of evangelicaldom tells you that the Bible whispers about sexual immorality, Jesus Christ says, I will come with a sword and fight it. And that's not whispering. When you're told that you just really need to be more open-minded because that's winsome, Jesus sharpens the sword and you see sparks fly. He loves the purity of his church. These things are not small. This kind of advice that says that winsomeness is a virtue, winsomeness is nowhere in Scripture said to be a virtue. Now, I would not encourage you to be a jerk. That's not really positive. But Christ cares about holiness, not winsomeness. And this is from his own mouth. May God give us ears to hear what he says to the churches.